Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holger Dressler, the host of the channel. Today, I'll be talking to Lynn Poyer, a cultural anthropologist and professor emerita at the University of Wyoming, about a new book, War at the Margins, Indigenous Experiences in World War II, published by University of Hawaii Press in December 2022. Poya's book offers a global and comparative view of the impact of World War II on indigenous societies. Indigenous peoples, Poya shows, had a distinct experience of World War II, as those on the margins of allied and Axis empires and nation states were drawn in as soldiers, scouts, guides, laborers, and victims. Using historical and ethnographic sources, Poya examines how indigenous communities emerged from the trauma of the wartime era with social forms and cultural ideas that laid the foundations for their 21st century emergence as players on the world's political stage. Lynn Poya, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Lynn, I wonder if you could begin by telling our listeners a bit about yourself. As you said, Holger, I'm currently a retired professor of cultural anthropology, but I got here by way of some other fields. My undergraduate degrees are in English and geology. So you can see I was interested in the intersection of physical sciences and the humanities. So I ended up in the social sciences. Um, My graduate work was at the University of Michigan. And in the late 1970s and 1980s, that was an era when historians were looking at anthropology and anthropologists were looking at history. So my initial field work, which was done on uh, Sapuafik, then called Nachik, uh, an atoll in Micronesia, was ethno-historical in nature. Um, Sapuafik suffered an attack by basically pirates in 1837, which destroyed the local population, and they rebuilt themselves into a new population over the following century. And my initial work studied um, the combination of how they saw their history with how they saw their cultural identity. Um, You can see then echoes of that and how I ended up working on this current topic of um, indigenous experiences in World War II. Yeah, uh, so that's that's really my question. How did you come to write this book about indigenous experiences of World War II? There are so many books on World War II, as I'm sure you know, um, but actually not that many that look at indigenous experiences of World War II. I think yours is probably the, the first really global overview of that particular aspect of this cataclysmic war. So tell us more about how you got to write this particular book with your experience in Micronesia and, uh, and other researchers. Well, you're right that there's an enormous amount of work in World War II, and it's not a topic that I had been particularly interested in until I worked in Micronesia. Um, Working in Micronesia, which was a Japanese colony before the war, uh, suffered through um, the invasion and the war years, and then was taken over um, by the United States at the end of the war, um, really made a huge 
impression on me in terms of seeing the war as a transformative event um, in these small-scale societies. And um, after working in Micronesia and trying to read more about what happened during the war, um, I realized that there was a hole in the literature. And with Suzanne Falgu and uh, Larry Carucci, who are also cultural anthropologists working in Micronesia, we received the National Endowment for the Humanities Grant to collect oral histories of the three years of war across um, the entirety uh, of the Micronesian region. And we wrote um, two books, The Typhoon of War and Memories of War, which are about Micronesian memories of the war and also Micronesian memorializations of the war. So that was my first major experience in really putting together historical information with oral histories from people. And after I had completed that book, I ended up uh, visiting Taiwan to give some lectures, and I met um, a young professor, Future Otsai, who has done research on um, Aboriginal Taiwanese experiences during the war, particularly men who were uh, recruited or drafted and served the, the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy in New Guinea. And as we talked, um, we saw that there were commonalities in the experiences of Aboriginal Taiwanese and of Micronesians during the war. And then I began to say, well, what about other indigenous people? And uh, the topic just got bigger and bigger. Um, Scott Sheffield and Noah Reisman uh, recently published a book uh, comparing indigenous experiences across the Anglophone uh, world during the war. And I think there was something going on in the atmosphere of history and anthropology um, that has really pushed both indigenous uh, studies of history and uh, new ways of conceptualizing the World War II years and the mid-century years. Right. So... Um which raises the question about what sort of new perspective emerges from looking at uh, World War II, this much written event and arguably one of the, the most seminal events of the 20th century um, from an indigenous perspective, or as the title of your book suggests, from the margins. Um, tell us more about that, that title and what kind of margins you refer to um, uh, as you look at the war. One of the things that really struck me in looking at um, the events of the war in areas where indigenous peoples form a, an important part of the population is that there are several wartime events that ha happened in indigenous homelands, which were crucial. So, for example, the Battle of Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands or the Battle of Imphal Kohima, which is in uh, the Naga homelands of um, northeast India. Um, or the events of Northern Europe in the Sami homelands of Finland, Norway, um, the Soviet Union at the time, Sweden. And I, I was struck by the contrast between what was happening in these crucial combat zones or areas of the war that affected the whole world, and yet the indigenous people living there had always been perceived as marginal to the interests of states or of no real concern to the major global powers. And that title, War at the Margins, um, is a way for me to say 
despite the fact that nation states and empires were constantly um, disvaluing or pushing to the fringes of their consciousness, these small-scale tribal societies, in fact, as part of the global order, some critical things happened in their homelands and in their experience during the war that ended up at the end of the century and now into our new century with the potential to actually reshape the global political order. Right. So the war happened at the margins of empire, as you just said, but it also turned those uh, margins into the center of warfare. That's where the front lines were uh, in the Pacific um, uh, in particular. So um, uh, I wonder if you could you know, elaborate a little bit more on how you sort of conceptualize the um, kind of spatial uh, formation um, and rethink maybe also you know, how global uh, um, the war was uh, and uh, what that global actually then means if we look at um, Solomon Islanders, if we look at the Sami in, 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 in Northern Europe, um, groups that we don't always uh, think of uh, uh, um, when we think of the war, um, uh, uh, of, the world, of World War II. Tell us more, a little bit more about how you think about space in, in your book. When, um, when I was thinking about this book and how to write it, um, you know, the book is only, the body of the book is, I'm looking at 200 the page pages. Numbers, two, something like that, yes. <laughs> and um, one of my goals was to make it a short, readable book. Um, but, of course, anything you write about World War II is infinitely large, so a part of what I had to do was to think about how to frame the book in such a way that I could tell the most interesting and the most compelling stories of what happened to people, um, but not in any way claim to be a complete history of indigenous peoples in World War II. So what I was looking at um, was two things. One was to kind of introduce the readership to these stories that they probably hadn't heard before, despite the endless libraries of World War II information. They probably had not heard about um, what the Sami experience was or the Aboriginal Taiwanese experience or um, the Bedouin in North Africa or um, the Naga's involvement in the Battle of Imphal and Kohima. Um, so it was partly to introduce that, but it was also to... Um, look at some key places, key players, uh, key times, and key spaces where the empires at war or the nation states at war had to deal directly with indigenous concerns. Now, in some cases, this was because combat crossed their territory. So uh, Guadalcanal, for example, um, in the first wave of American Marines coming ashore, uh, there were a few young men who had grown up in Guadalcanal who were at school elsewhere in the Pacific, but who um, came ashore as guides. And in fact, for the rest of, for the entire war in the Solomon Islands, local people were absolutely crucial as guides. And this was true in several parts of the world. Um, but there were also cases where Native Americans, for example, had skills such as the Navajo language code talker program, which became essential 
to the combatant powers. Um, so I was looking both at what happened when, in terms of space, when combat crossed indigenous territories, but also in terms of, what shall we say, expertise or indigenous capacity, which came to the attention of these major powers in the course of the war. Right. So, um, as you write in the in the in the first chapter, uh, the indigenous peoples that were uh, confronted with this this war not of their making, um, actually, you know, were sort of the margins. But that marginality actually became a, a quality that uh, both sides uh, in the war, the uh, allies in the Axis powers. Um, try to leverage and try to use and try to exploit. Um, can you give us some examples on how that how that played out um, uh, during the war? Talking is a wonderful example. It was not only Navajos, although they are they the Navajo Code Talker program was the largest American Code Talker program. Um, there were other Native American languages used. Uh, Canadians also used some native languages. Uh, Maori used their own language further encoded um, when they were in the field in North Africa. Um, The use of indigenous languages is a great example. These languages had been marginalized. Uh, They had been discouraged. Um, They had been um, repressed. And yet um, the time came when they became an essential part of uh, the battlefield armamentarium for um, the combatant powers. In one of the chapters in your book, um, and you have you have uh, you really succeed, I think, in uh, in making this this huge topic um, accessible, um, uh, very crisp and, and concise, uh, short sentences, short chapters, and um, and a great sort of um, overview and, and and angle into the war. Um, one of the themes that emerged in in reading your book uh, was that uh, that of race. And in one of the chapters, chapter five, you you talk about all the different peoples coming to uh, these theaters of war. For example, African-American servicemen uh, as part of the Allied forces who stream into the Pacific and encounter Pacific Islanders wherever they go. So I was quite fascinated reading those those parts. Um, you write that uh, African-American units uh, in the U.S. military at the time were often restricted to support and construction activities until late into the war, uh, and that meant that they were actually quite close to Pacific Islanders uh, and did much of the the manual labor, the non-combat labor um, of the war. So um, I I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about those particular quite quite fascinating uh, interactions between African-American soldiers um, and uh, Pacific Islanders during the war. That was a very interesting thing that I learned about, um, because when we think about African-American history, we are usually thinking about the history of African-Americans in the United States, or perhaps um, relationship with African communities. And yet, in World War II, 5.3 million Americans went abroad, and that included an enormous number of African-Americans. As you say, there were Uh, at least in the early years of the war, in strictly segregated units, primarily working in support and construction facilities. But that meant that wherever they went, they had a lot of interaction with local people. Um, You mentioned the Pacific Islands, and I will come back to that in a minute. But I should also mention that um, African Americans were uh, a significant portion of the 
troops assigned uh, to defend Australia. They were also uh, numerous in New Zealand, um, and they they formed a large uh, portion of the construction crews and engineering battalions assigned to build um, roads, the Lido Road in Burma, India, and um, the Alaska-Canada Highway. So in all these areas, they came into uh, sustained and pretty intensive uh, contact with local communities. And I talk about um, the Southwest Pacific, as you mentioned, in particular, because there's really good historical evidence that um, the interaction between uh, Pacific Islanders, especially Solomon Islanders, um, with Native, I'm sorry, with African American troops, uh, made a very significant political impact. Uh, African Americans themselves during the war were um, thinking about, conscious of, and working on um, issues of civil rights. Uh, they were engaged, many of them, in what they call the Double V campaign, which is a campaign for victory in the war, but also for victory at home in terms of civil rights. So when they encountered um, this British-Australian colonial racial hierarchy that was um, the status quo in the colonial um, Solomon Islands and New Guinea region, uh, they were not going to go along with it. Uh, they didn't feel comfortable and they didn't agree with um, policies that restricted the kinds of clothing um, local workers could wear or segregated eating facilities between uh, the American troops and the local people or um, rules about uh, not sharing uh, your goods or not uh, giving gifts to local workers. And the, the more local workers and African-American troops interacted, the more local people, um, young men who were already thinking about issues of colonialism and political change, the more they absorbed uh, ideas about how to form approaches to political action that would give them some new avenues which they were able to exploit after the war. They were not immediately successful, but these ideas of um, civil rights, of um, contesting colonial repression, of uh, rejecting racial barriers, um, really did come in part from their interaction with African-American soldiers, and they were able to hold on to those ideas and develop them further in post-war political action. Right. So as you said, that's actually an, an interesting and I think understudied uh, chapter of, uh, of the story of civil rights uh, in the United States, or a direct kind of um, um, interesting sort of uh, uh, boomerang effect uh, for U.S. history, but then also for Pacific Islander history and, uh, and other parts where, where the war touched on um, how those interactions with these thousands, tens of thousands um, of allied soldiers streaming into those islands um, has, have changed um, the islands politically and in other ways. Um, the other major influence is, of course, um, we've touched on that already, um, the question of, of labor, of military labor. Um, and um, several chapters in your book 
talk about the importance of indigenous peoples in providing labor power for uh, both sides, um, for uh, the Axis powers and for the allies. Uh, you say that these militaries actually weaponized indigenous peoples in various ways. Um, we talked about the language um, use already, but then the labor power um, uh, and uh, and also in other ways. Uh, in, in, in one chapter, you say that the allies outcompeted the Japanese by flooding um, the Pacific Islands and, uh, with with commodities and supplies, and thereby enticing um, islanders to actually work for the Allies rather than for the Japanese. Um, I thought that was quite an interesting um, um, connection there. So I wanted to uh, ask you to uh, talk a little bit more about the the central question of labor um, during the war and how indigenous peoples fit in there in the Pacific and elsewhere. There are really the book really talks about two kinds of labor, and I think you're talking more about the second, which I will talk about. But I have several chapters where I talk about um, explicitly military labor, um, so uh, the involvement of indigenous people as members of regular troops or as uh, ad hoc uh, members of the military, as guerrilla troops, as translators, um, as guides. Uh, as porters in specifically military situations. But there's also, um, later in the book, I spend time talking about civilian labor. And that's where the very large numbers that you mentioned come in. We know very little about what happened to um, really everybody who worked for the Japanese um, across the Asia-Pacific region because so many um, records were destroyed and so much was lost at the end of the war. But we know that indigenous people like the large colonial populations and the uh, populations on occupied regions uh, were drafted and forced into labor for the Japanese. I was able to talk much more about allied labor because we have, of course, the records and much more information about it. And um, it's very clear that wherever combat occurred, um, civilians nearby were drawn into labor. So if you were anywhere near the front lines, uh, if you were male, you were going to be, and not even the front lines, if you were anywhere near a base or a military facility, men were going to be drawn into work in warehousing, stevedoring, construction, portering, um, just that basic labor. And some of it was already familiar to people of, uh, from pre-war work, but the the scale and the mechanization of labor um, that flowed into places like the Southwest Pacific or the Arctic um, or Northern Finland, which had not seen much industrialization before this era, uh, really made a big impact on people. It gave them new skills, it gave them a higher uh, level of wages, and it um, introduced them to a, a global economy that they had been fairly isolated from before. If you were female, you were also drawn in because there was um, what was considered uh, domestic work, either by the local people or by the military. So you might be doing um, laundry work, you might be producing souvenirs, you might be producing food, local food for uh, to sell, sell to um, the troops nearby, uh, and there was also sex work, which accompanies uh, soldiers anywhere they land. Um, 
The other part of labor during the war, which I discuss, is how on the home front, indigenous people were drawn into this sort of insatiable um, demand for increased production. So if you look at North America, for example, in both Canada and the U.S., indigenous uh, people ended up uh, moving, ended up congregating in larger numbers, ended up being recruited uh, for industrial labor to a much greater extent than they had been before the war. Um, This was true also in Japan for the Ainu, for example. And anywhere this happened, you had not only the economic consequences, but you had two other things that happened. Uh, On the one hand, you had the nation seeing this as evidence that people who were part of the indigenous community were somehow being assimilated or absorbed, at least that was the mistaken perception of the majority population, is that once Maori got jobs in the city or Native Americans moved to Los Angeles, that they were somehow going to become assimilated. Um, But on the other hand, what was actually happening is you had larger numbers of indigenous people living in communities where they became more solidified uh, as a cultural identity and began to develop a stronger uh, political voice for themselves as a result of interacting more um, with people, for example, from other tribes in the case of uh, Native North Americans and creating a sense of pan-Indian identity, uh, which accelerated during the war and after the war. So the question of labor during the war had um, these very numerous ramifications. In Australia, for example, pre-war labor in North Australia of indigenous Australians had really been controlled by the pastoralists and um, the religious missions, which had controlled the movement of indigenous people and controlled how Australian Aboriginal people were allowed to um, spend their time and to a very limited extent engage in certain kinds of labor. But when the army began to fortify northern Australia under the fear of Japanese invasion, they had very different ideas about labor. And they established labor camps. They were much more sensitive to um, Australian Aboriginal wishes and interests. And um, they offered much higher wages and much wider range of uh, employment opportunities. And the the changes that they instituted in labor had um, serious uh, reverberations for the post-war labor environment across all of indigenous Australia. So labor, as you say, um, with almost the entire globe involved in some aspect of the war, ended up with some pretty fantastic political and economic repercussions for indigenous people, as it did, of course, for everyone. 
Right. So labor was a was a crucible for solidarity, for bringing people together, moving them, but also um, lots of coercion actually um, happening, especially in the in the war zones themselves. So um, I wonder if you wanted to delve maybe into one example uh, in a little bit more detail, even um, on how um, uh, workers, you know, sort of um, navigated uh, these tensions between being more or less coerced into uh, various forms of, of war work uh, on the one hand, but on the other hand, also using new opportunities that uh, came along with with the war and sort of unpresent, unprecedented changes um, uh, during, during wartime. Well, let me think if I can offer two kind of contrasting um, scenarios. One of the things I talk about is uh, the situation of people who were living between the lines, where um, they were trapped between changing front lines under combat conditions. Um, For example, New Guinea or um, the India-Burma border. Um, Labor under this condition meant that you basically did what the people with the guns told you to do. So if you were living in New Guinea from the time of the Japanese invasion until the end of the war in some parts of New Guinea, um, you were simply subject to the militarized control of whatever force um, was in charge of your local area. So people's options were fairly limited and they recognized that. So in talking about the war, people would say, we had no power here. Um, The Japanese had the guns, we obeyed them. When the Australians came in, they had guns, we obeyed them. When the Americans came in, they had guns. They basically had no choice but to uh, act as porters or guides or um, agricultural workers under conditions of complete military rule. So that's a situation in which the oppression of war and the forced labor gave people very, very few options um, to find ways out. When I look at places like that, what I see is that it gave people a very concrete sense that they did not exert power over their own lives. And as after the war, they began to talk about self-determination and issues of independence, the generation that lived through the war very much had in their minds what happens to you if you don't have self-determination and you don't have independence and control over your own life. Now, I'm going to contrast that with the situation in um, the India-Burma border, where you have the Naga, the Chin, the Kachin, um, a whole group of uh, the Kuki, a whole group of um, peoples who live on the border and live in the hill areas. They're kind of traditionally called the hill tribes of Burma, who had resisted British control since its beginning, um, who had resisted the control of the lowland states for thousands of years, who used their hills as a kind of protection to try to maintain their own small-scale uh, tribal horticultural trading way of life. 
they were faced with um, the invasion of the Japanese and then the invasion, counter-invasion by the British through their region as the war raged over several years. They felt, because of the conditions of war in their area, a little more freedom of action. They were certainly subject to the same forced labor and repressive military control. But because of the physical environment that they lived in and because of their mastery of their environment and because of the changing tides of war there, they were able to, um, what's the word, to change alliances and manage alliances between the Japanese and the British in a way that was more protective of their local communities to the extent that they could. The impact of this after the war was their absolute determination to continue to maintain that independence in their hill area that they had maintained for thousands of years. That here they had faced the competing powers of two of the world's major empires and had dealt with it. And I think that gave them the confidence to say, we can handle independence and self-determination. And as we see, they continue um, to struggle within the nation states of Burma and India. They continue to struggle for greater independence uh, for their own communities. One of the other major impacts of the war was on the environment. And um, you have a chapter and also other references throughout on in the environmental history um, uh, of the war uh, as it relates to indigenous peoples. Um, you talk about the destruction of um, homelands of indigenous peoples throughout the world, the contamination, toxic and then nuclear, um, the debris of the war, um, leftover ordinance, that's still around even today, uh, and then also the introduction of non-native species and uh, and other um, impacts. Uh, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about um, what effect the war had um, on the environment and how that um, impacted indigenous peoples in, in specific ways. This whole field of war's environmental impacts has really grown in the past few years. Um, and I was really pleased to see it. So we can see the impact of war in, um, okay, I could talk about three, three different dimensions. One is the way the infrastructure construction in the course of the war really transformed what were, in many cases, quite delicate and fragile uh, environments. Um, as you say, it primarily harmed them, although there were some cases in which um, infrastructure provided a serious uh, assistance to local people. But if you think about the construction of air bases in the Arctic or the demand for rubber, which pushed development so far and so aggressively into the Amazon basin, or um, the paving over of entire islands in the Pacific in order to create uh, air bases for um, the Japanese expanding empire and then uh, for the uh, invasing, invading allies uh, in the same region, um, you have e enormous uh, environmental impacts. Um, as you say, these did not go away after the war. Uh, in fact, the 
profound effects of the war's environmental impact continue to emerge, not only in things like exploding bombs, which of course we see even in Europe uh, decades after the war, but in things like the um, sunken ships throughout uh, all the world's oceans, which continue to leak oil and uh, toxic gases um, and to be uh, destructive, or um, stores of uh, environmental toxins, which were never fully cleaned up after the war, Uh, the impact of nuclear uh, testing facilities, which followed uh, immediately upon the war in other parts of the world. The other um, environmental impact, uh, which stretched out and continues to stretch out into the present, is that uh, militaries are extremely efficient in assessing where resources are and how they can best be used. So one of the things I learned in putting this book together is how nations and empires looked at the entire world as their source of military supplies and how they set up logistical systems and extractive systems uh, allowing them to find and extract what they needed. So parts of the world that had been pretty much unknown for commercial purposes in terms of their mining resources or their timber resources or their um, marine resources um, were now inventoried and were now mapped and were now made accessible after the war, uh, not only to government um, possible government use or intervention, but also for commercial exploitation, um, which opened these areas after the war, partly due to the new infrastructure, but also partly due to the new awareness that these areas that had been at the margins of state control or state interest actually held uh, valuable resources which could be exploited. Um, And that continues to be uh, a result of World War II's uh, global reach. Right. Um, And anything sort of particularly to indigenous peoples um, um, in terms of the environmental impact, since many indigenous peoples, you know, in the Pacific, of course, uh, the war happened right on the islands, um, but elsewhere uh, too. And then you mentioned native peoples also, you know, moving to different places uh, in the metropoles um, and then in the war zones. Um, Anything sort of unique to the environmental impact of World War II as it relates to, to indigenous peoples? Well, for Native Americans, one of the most significant results was that um, Native Americans actually lost uh, access to land and resources as areas that had been reserved for uh, Native Americans uh, became taken over either voluntarily or through uh, forced acquisition by the U.S. military or in the case of Canada, the Canadian military. So there was a physical loss of land uh, in those places. I think in areas like um, the hill hill areas of the India-Burma region, the environmental uh, destruction of forests for the timber resources needed for construction 
uh, both by the invading Japanese army and then by the counter-invading British army, um, resulted in a massive deforestation of, of that area, which is uh, still affecting them. As you said, the um, areas of the Southwest Pacific that were taken as bases by either the Japanese or by uh, the Americans or other allies resulted in uh, permanent uh, damage, not only in terms of, as we said, um, leaked toxins or the post-war uh, nuclear testing, but also um, the destruction of reefs when you, when you build uh, bases or land areas. Islands are very delicate, and the destruction of reefs or the, the um, paving over and destruction of taro uh, gardens, which are uh, pretty delicate and take uh, many decades to reconstruct, has resulted in um, some permanent long-term damage. I talk about the island of Peleliu, which most Americans know uh, for the battle there. Uh, when people, after Peleliu was built as a Japanese base and then underwent the battle and then was taken over as an American base, by the time people got back to where they had once lived, uh, there was literally nothing there. There was a blank uh, eye-blinding expanse of white where there had been five indigenous Palawan villages. Um, and that was not the only place where that happened. Uh, the sort of just wholesale destruction of areas um, where bases went in uh, was true in several parts of the world. Mm. Finally, I wanted to ask you about the politics of memory um, of the war. Um, who remembers what and how did indigenous peoples remember the war? Um, how does that maybe complicate also our um, you know, non-indigenous understandings of the, of the war? Uh, and then related to that, also you mentioned already the, the war infrastructure um, and its effect on the post-war with airfields being, you know, used for civilian purposes and then later also for tourist purposes, actually, you you end with with some comments on dark tourism, on, on sort of the tourism of, um, uh, of looking at uh, sites of war, veterans, but then also other people just being interested in that, uh, and then other kind of tourist avenues for uh, those places um, uh, and indigenous homelands. Um, so could you elaborate a little bit on the kind of longer long-term memory and long-term effects then also of the war um, as it relates to, to infrastructure and, and tourism. You know, World War II is such a vivid public memory for Europeans and for Americans that I think uh, it helps us to realize that for a lot of people, it really wasn't their war. <laughs> um, they became involved in this war because giants were fighting over their heads, basically. Um, so if you think of being um, a, a Yanomamo rubber tapper or a, um, an Ainu fisherman, the war was not really your war in many ways. It was the war of the nation states or the empires of which you were a citizen or of which you were a subject. So memories of that war have a very different valence in these different communities. But as you point out, how pe people in the major combatant powers remember indigenous 
participation in the war has a very real effect on the current situation for indigenous people. So one question that Robert Hall, who wrote about um, Aboriginal Australian participation in World War II, uh, pointed out really assertively, if the nation state doesn't remember and memorialize your community's participation in the war, they are unable to see you as a full participant in the nation. So one thing that I ask is to what extent and in what way do the combatant powers remember the involvement of indigenous people? So for Native Americans, for example, after the um, Code Talker program was uh, made accessible in public records, the entire contribution of Native Americans to World War II became much more vivid in the American public's mind because of movies and uh, a Mattel talking doll and just general publicity about it. Um, And that really helped uh, establish uh, a vision of Native American participation in sort of the American historical project. The same thing was true in Canada. Japan, however, has had a lot more trouble dealing with the way it thinks about the war and memorializes the war. And um, I discuss how the participation of indigenous Taiwanese in uh, the Imperial Japanese Army really only came to light for the Japanese population when uh, the last straggler was found, uh, the last straggler from the Japanese army uh, appeared in the 1970s and turned out to be uh, an Aboriginal Taiwanese person. Um, So his story kind of broke open uh, the public memory of how Japan had engaged uh, many subject populations in their prosecution of the war. But then the other part, as you say, is to ask how we have this problem, if you can think of it as a problem. If you're living on a place where battles happened, but the battles were not your battles, what do you do with the cemeteries and the memorials and the battlegrounds that you're now living in the middle of? And one of the ways that people have figured out to deal with them is to actually see them as an economic resource. Um, So the Battle of Peleview, for example, did not directly involve Palauan people. Um, It involved Japanese and Americans who are both remain, both of whom as nations remain very interested in that battleground and very committed to preserving it in different ways. Um, But the people living there have to sort of deal with all this junk, really, in a way, this this remains of war, uh, which is sometimes dangerous to kids and is sometimes toxic and is sometimes just a pain to live among. Um, So one way that the Palauan government has dealt with that is to try to um, envision the battlefield as a, a memorial site and a site for visitors and in some ways a tourist site. Um, And there are other parts of the world where this discussion is ongoing and very interesting. In northern Finland, for example, where the remains of uh, German um, bases and encampments and prison 
um, camps kind of litter uh, an otherwise sparsely populated landscape, um, there is a, an act of discussion of whether um, these war remains should be seen as valuable cultural heritage that should be preserved and perhaps made into some kind of a visitor's facility, or whether it really is litter uh, that destroys the natural environment and ought to be kind of tidied up and, and put away. Um, one of the problematic things is that places where that have difficult or uh, really morally challenging events of the war uh, occurred, people have to find a way to deal with that history in a way that makes sense to them and in a way that is acceptable to the foreigners who fought there. So, for example, um, the Kokoda Trail in New Guinea, which is very important to Australians, um, has a very different meaning and sensibility to New Guinea people, and they have to find a way to manage those competing ideas. Uh, in the Soviet Union, the uh, what is now Russia, Russia has a, a, a and the Soviet Union both had a very strong commitment to memorializing what they call the Great Patriotic War. And um, in earlier years and still today, they have a, an interest in memorializing and commemorating the way all the different nationalities within Russia uh, contributed to it. But uh, for people like the, the Nenets, reindeer herders of Russia, part of their memory of the war is when they resisted uh, the Soviet attempts to uh, confiscate their reindeer and uh, compel them, force them into labor for the war. Uh, their resistance was very uh, strongly and definitively repressed by the Soviet state. So they have to figure out a way to manage that memory in a way that is protect, protects their modern population, but also honors what their ancestors went through. So the memories of war... Um, you know, it's true also for Germany. It's true also for the United States as we think about the bombing of Hiroshima. Um, these are contested memories and difficult memories. And I think part of the interest in World War II is that uh, the world as a whole has not yet come to grips with what we think the war means for us as a species, as humanity, not just as individual nations. And um, indigenous peoples, like like everybody else who was engaged in that war, are still thinking and figuring out uh, how to deal with that memory. Mm. World War II is not even passed, and there's unfortunately new wars around as well. Uh, so that that uh, continues. I think the interest also in that uh, in that uh, biggest war yet. Um, I wanted to end with the. Very last question that I like to put uh, to all my guests. What was the most surprising thing you learned while doing research for the book? Thank you for that question. Um, one of the characteristics of um, indigenous scholarship is um, the really strong emphasis that indigenous scholars and anybody who works with indigenous history recognizes is that every indigenous community is unique. It has its own culture, it has its own language, it has its own um, history, it has its own 
sense of nationality and identity. And what was striking to me, and at first seemed impossible as I approached this topic, is that despite this absolute uniqueness of each community, when we look at them in a structural sense and in a global sense, and we look at what happened globally in the war, there were so many continuities and parallels in people's experience. So when I when I look at what happened to the Ainu in the war and the Ainu struggle to maintain an identity um, within the Japanese system and be both loyal Japanese and true Ainu, I saw the same sensitivity to that paradox and the same uh, recognition of what it meant to be indigenous when I looked at the experience of um, the Navajos or the Sioux in uh, the, serving in the American army, or when I looked at um, the Fijians uh, forming a voluntary group to serve overseas in order to be part of the British war effort, that simultaneous desire to maintain one's identity and one's cultural um, uniqueness and yet a recognition that they were part of a global effort and part of a global situation, which was out of their control, and yet um, which they found ways to engage with in a creative way that ended up allowing them, after the war, to build their community into a more politically and culturally effective force. So the most surprising thing then to me was the way I could see both uniqueness and similarity when you made the picture big enough to encompass the entire global situation. That's great. And I think I, I can commend you for, for bringing all of those tensions actually um, across so, so nicely and so concisely um, in a relatively slim book of, uh, about such a big topic. Um, so today I was talking to Lynn Poyer uh, about her book, War at the Margins, Indigenous Experiences in World War II. I encourage all listeners to get the book. Um, there's no excuse, actually. It's open access uh, PDF uh, through the University of Hawaii Press. So um, go get it and read it. Uh, Lynn, I wanted to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you.